the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Tomb Believers, the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is James Dixon. And I'm Trey Lawson. And it's here, guys. We 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 we've warned you. We 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 told you this is coming. We told you we've to been teasing it snacks. for months. Yeah, we, we told you to get snacks. Like yes. snacks, and let's be honest, maybe some adult beverages. Uh, <laughs> because it's time for our big summer event. It's time for Inferno! That's right. And as with Heroes Reborn, we should clarify, we're doing the 1989 Inferno, not the 2020s Inferno that was what, I think it spun out of some of Hickman's stuff, but it was more recent. So we're doing the old one this time. What reverse of what them, we did with Heroes Reborn. What is with them reusing 80s like crossover titles? Um, nostalgia. Okay. Uh, and of course, we are not doing this alone because we, Trey, are not experts. This is correct. But we do have one with us. Welcome to the show, Chad Anderson. Hey, everybody. It's nice to join you guys. I'm happy to be on the Tomb of Ideas. And Thank you. Chad, we're you, glad to have you. Um, you are an expert. Uh, At least somewhat, yes. (laughs) Because you have an X-Men podcast. Yes, I do. Uh, I'm actually, uh, so I got my start. I was a a Marvel Comics handbook writer back in the the 2000s. And they considered me their X-Men guy. I was the guy who they would turn (laughs) to for all of the X-Men continuity craziness. And yes, now I'm doing an X-Men show, which is is extra fun. Uh, Lots of analysis and, and like really deep dives into big heavy themes and lots of nerding out it's a blast you know you're not actually you're actually not the only um for, former marvel handbook writer who's a friend of the show <laughs> who else uh barry reese oh great barry's a great guy he is and so we brought you here because well um this crossover is really before i really got into x-men i got into x-men with executioner's song because that's around the time i started reading comics so this whole era of X-Men is kind of a blind spot for me because I started reading X-Men with X-Men number one through. Do, do you remember the gray bordered reprints like the silver border reprints? Yeah, yeah. And then my aunt gifted me, I think it's Son of Origins of Marvel Comics. I remember that. Yeah. And so I've read a lot of X-Men all the way through the Phoenix Saga. But Inferno was always this kind of this thing that, you know, happened before I came in. It, it, it's, it's referenced a lot. You know, oh, Scott had a wife before Jean and, you know, da 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 But it's really a gray area for us. And Trey, I don't know if that's the same for you or not. 
Sort of, yeah. I'm, so I was into comics from a very young age, but my dad was a DC guy. And so for the longest time, what I knew were mostly DC comics. Marvel I got into through cartoons and toys, mostly. And so for me, I, I got into X-Men through the 90s cartoon, which led me to the comics that were coming out sort of at that point. But the toys at that time, which I think were toy biz, were this weird hodgepodge of some <laughs> of them were the newer Jim Lee designs, and some of them were still using the older designs from uh, sort of Walt Simonson and, and some of those guys. And so, like, my favorite Cyclops toy was the X-Factor blue and white Walt Simonson suit. And so I had sort of a vague understanding of that. And I had one of those unofficial guides to the history of comics type things as a kid. And it had sections on both X-Men and X-Factor. And so I was vaguely aware that the original X-Men became this other team for a while. And for a while, we're sort of operating concurrently. But it was all very sort of, I knew it from an encyclopedia entry, not from having read the comics themselves. So yeah, this is a big blind spot for me. Dipped in and out of Claremont era stuff and, and Simonson era stuff. But I've certainly never tackled a whole event like this. Yeah. And it's a big event. Yes, it is. In fact, <laughs> and it wraps it. around the whole Marvel universe, as we will get into in future episodes. <laughs> Yeah. In fact, um, listeners, if you didn't catch us on one of our previous announcements of this event, we're actually taking 10 episodes to cover Inferno. Yes. And, and that's generous includes, and necessary. And, and, and that's with us doing more issues than usual in most of those episodes. Yeah. Speaking of issues on this episode, we're going to be talking about Uncanny X-Men 239, X-Factor 33, X-Factor 34, and X-Factor 35. We've got more X-Factor than Simon Cowell. <laughs> uh, um, I'll allow it. That, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I, I'm too proud of myself for that one. But first, Chad, we brought you here because you are an expert. And we're starting off the episode, as we're going to do every episode, with a segment we like to call... Previously on X-Men. <laughs> Chad, can you tell us what is happening with our Merry Mutants up to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the X-Men is a giant universe. My podcast, which is called Grey Malkin Lane, that's the street that the X-Men live on. That's where the mansion is. And it's it's all about the concept of found family, right? You leave everything behind and you find your home with someone else, which is why I named the show that. But we started at the beginning. We started in 1963 when X-Men 1 first launched and we've spent a lot of time kind of slowly working our way through the mythology. And completely appropriate teacher-student relationships. <laughs> I mean, mostly. <laughs> Xavier is a little creepy sometimes, but he's not in these issues. He's in space at this time. It's fine. Uh, the, uh, the book was canceled in 1969, and they ran reprints of it for, for quite some time. And the, the characters, the original five X-Men, ended up in a lot of different places. Uh, some of them joined the uh, the champions and then the defenders way later. Beast became blue and furry. There was they kind of appeared in ancillary spaces. And then in 1975, giant size X-Men number one, which was launched. And this is the really famous book that introduced Storm and Wolverine and Nightcrawler and Colossus to the team. Uh, a little while later, they relaunched the book at X-Men 94. Maybe it was 93 was the first issue. And a few issues uh, in Claremont took over. 
1975. And now uh, the books we're reviewing today are 1988. So something that people don't often take time is Claremont had been writing X-Men for 12 to 13 years at this point. And the characters have gone through a ton of changes. His most famous story is the Dark Phoenix saga, where Jean Grey... Uh, becomes possessed slash replaced slash uh, turns into a cosmic entity who ends up uh, murdering a planet. And then uh, she dies at the end, kind of from her own hubris. Claremont did not want this character to die, but editorial made her die at the end of all of this. And it was a very controversial story that changed uh, everything in the X-Men franchise afterward. Then the team expanded. The X-Men are lost in space. It's 1983. The new mutants are launched. Claremont wants to redo this character. And so he creates a new character called Madeline Pryor. Jean is gone. And Cyclops meets a woman that looks just like his wife, but she's a distinct and separate character. And they get married and they have a baby. And then in the mid-1980s, Editorial wanted to expand the franchise once again. And they launched the idea of uh, bringing together a new team called X-Factor, which would reunite the original X-Men in kind of a new premise. And they mandated that Jean Grey come back from the dead, which then resulted in a mandate that Cyclops had to leave his wife and baby behind and go off and be with Jean Grey. So the new team has now formed. They have this wonky premise where they are pretending to be mutant hunters, but really they're rescuing mutant children. They fight apocalypse. All sorts of crazy stuff is going on. And I'll, I'll bring you up to date on that in just a moment. But meanwhile, uh, the uh, the character Mr. Sinister has been created. And he has put together a group of very, very crazy, deadly assassins. It's like the biggest threat the X-Men have ever faced. They're called the Marauders. And the Marauders are hunting down the loved ones of mutants and mutants themselves. They wipe out the Morlocks. The body count is rising. And Madeline Pryor, at least by Cyclops, is believed to be dead. And the baby is missing. Sinister has taken the little baby, who's named Nathan Christopher. We'll see him in this. Uh, in this, uh, Sinister at this time was like a very creepy, mad scientist, as opposed to like the very Shakespearean, foppish, <laughs> chew the scenery guy that we're getting in the comics these days. He was like a very scary, like vampire looking guy who sat on a throne and was manipulating everything and crazy powerful. But we didn't know a lot about him. This is kind of a brand new era. So X-Factor has gathered a bunch of kids around uh, and the X-Men uh, have formed a team that is believed dead. A giant guy named the Adversary attacked all the X-Men are believed dead, and Madeline Pryor is part of the team. And because all of their loved ones are being hunted down, they allow themselves to go on letting the world believe that they are dead. And this is the Outback era that's so infamous. The X-Men have moved to Australia. They're pretending to be dead, and they are facing escalating threats. They're fighting the Reavers, who are just these scary machine dudes that are mowing everything down. They come across Genosha, which is so scary. It's a country that is turning mutants into mindless slaves and removing their identities. And they're coming right out of that as we jump into these issues. So you've got to realize how like high the, high the stakes are. A lot of the X-Men do not know that Jean Grey is back alive. Scott thinks that his wife and baby are both dead and or missing. There's a lot happening. When we focus on X-Factor itself, a couple key things we should recap on. They have created a home on a, a sentient celestial ship 
that used to belong to Apocalypse, but now it's their base. The ship talks to them. It interacts with them. Uh, this is the future character, Prosh, for those that uh, followed the comics for a long time. Magneto's in charge of the New Mutants, who are like in their Rebellion era. Excalibur has just formed. This is before Wolverine even has a solo, solo title. Like The books are expanding, but, uh, but there's a, a ton of things uh, happening, and it's still kind of early on before the line expands even more. So Cyclops is with Jean. Jean's sister, Sarah, her home was burned down. She and her children are missing. The stakes for the mutants are rising ever higher. The government has passed what they call a mutant registration act, meaning you have to go in and put your name on a set of forms, say what your real name is, your identity. And they have also weaponized the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants as their agents. They're now calling them Freedom Force. And this is Mystique's team. So they're supervillains hunting down mutants uh, who are not registering. Uh, the other really major thing is Angel has gone through a lot uh, at this point. <laughs> There's a character named Cameron Hodge that's introduced. You very much get the sense that he was in love with Angel in his youth. Uh, and he has now formed a paramilitary anti-mutant group called The Right. Uh, he basically took Angel's company and then took his wings. And then Apocalypse got involved and turned Angel into the Horseman Death. And so... The uh, X-Factor team has has believed Angel to be dead for quite some time. He's this crazy blue metal wing guy who's flying around trying to figure out who, who he is. And uh, Cameron Hodge has kidnapped the love of Angel's life, the incre- incredible character Candy Southern. Uh, and she's been missing for a while. So Angel's looking for her. I think the last really key piece is, well, there's two. Rogue was just in Genosha and she suffered what appeared to be a pretty significant sexual assault. And so Carol Danvers, the the character Ms. Marvel, who Rogue has taken her powers and her memories, Carol has taken over Rogue's mind at this point. She is kind of taking control because Rogue's in trauma and she can't handle herself. Another really key piece is Beast has been going through it in a different way. Uh, The character Famine infected him, and then he got kissed by this poisonous lady named Infectia. So when we start this, he's shifting back and forth between his human form and back into his blue furry form. Uh, there's clearly a lot of continuity brewed and I'm trying to keep things brief, but there's a, there's a lot happening in the mutant world at this time. One thing I always try to do on my show is I try to put things in context as well. So this is late 1988. These issues come out right at the same time. I, I was 10 years old, the land before time. And the Disney movie Oliver and Company and the first and the first child's play are just being uh, released in theaters. This is an era where I was collecting He-Man and Garbage Pail Kids uh, and like Garfield and Friends was on TV. It's sometimes interesting to look at the quality of these books and the themes that were being explored, given the types of things that were being produced at the time. Uh, so there's a lengthy but also kind of fast recap. <laughs> there's a lot of characters in these books and there's a lot happening. Uh, we also, uh, I, I did not mention some of my favorite characters because they're insane. Uh, Nanny and her ward, the orphan maker, are killing parents so that they can uh, liberate mutant babies and raise them for themselves. Uh, we'll talk about those characters today as well. So Sinister, Nanny and the Orphan Maker, Madeline Pryor, and now there's a whole realm full of demons in Limbo, which is where magic has her origins that are kind of infecting the realm uh, and making deals with people. There's a lot of deals with the devil that take place in this era. So there's a quick recap. If you have any questions, (laughs) there's about 30 characters running around these four books we're going to talk about. And I'm sure we will flesh some of that out as we go, because certainly... When I was reading for this episode, I, I could sort of feel all of that sort of missing context and continuity in the background of things. Like I, I sort of had like the you know the Marvel fandom wiki open in another window 
so that I could occasionally <laughs> search a character's name or, or check to see, okay, so how does this fit together? And, and so I'm, I'm sure we'll have to do a little bit of that for, for people listening. The other day I was watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy, which is I think in season 19 now. And my husband walked through and was like, what is happening here? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd have to go back to like season four to tell you this history about what happened with this character and why that one died. Like it's too much. And this is how these books are is you can pick up an issue and just enjoy it. Or you can do the deep dives and go back to the beginning and find out where they came from and why all that matters. There's a lot of continuity and a lot of characters mixed in together. And it's great. And and this is, this does seem to be where, especially just internally within the X books, everything was interconnected all, all of the different and partly because you know you had just a handful of people writing all of these books uh, and so they could make them interconnected like that it, it reminds me a little bit just to connect it to something that i did grow up reading more of sort of the triangle era of superman where you had this sort of team of writers and artists working on a whole set of titles and because they were collaborative all of it could fit together and you kind of had to follow all of the books to make sense of what was going on. If you want the whole story, or you can just take a slice out of it and not worry about the stuff you're missing and enjoy what you enjoy. Right. There's, there's no right or wrong wrong way. Every (laughs) issue is somebody's first one person may collect only one book. Someone else is buying everything, but this is what I love about the Marvel universe is it's this giant playground and everything weaves together. Some of it's very nonsensical others. It's very good. This is also an era where they were starting to do summer events a lot And some of the events that they did are very mediocre or very disjointed. Inferno is great. The the creators are all at like the height of what they're doing. The stories are solid. The characters are consistent. Not everybody loves every page, but it's really good storytelling by and large through all of these books. Uh, There's also a limited series that comes out during this time called The Exterminators, which you guys will probably end up reviewing which Next is all the kids. We've, got it. We've got it on the list. Yeah, which is all the kids that are living with X Factor who are getting their own solo adventure, breaking out from Inferno, which is really fun as well. You talk about lackluster summer events. I read a few of the issues leading up to Inferno and that crossover with Evolutionary War. Yeah, yeah. It is a very different character than it was recently in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I do a monthly character trial on my show where I'll read a character's entire chronology and we hold a mock criminal trial. And I'm doing the trial of the high evolutionary later this summer. So (laughs) I I literally just read his, uh, his, his chronology front to back. And I love him. I think he's great. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that means we should go ahead and start getting into issues. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be right back with uncanny X-Men 239 right after these messages. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at johnreadscomics.com. Child's Play, a terrifying new movie. Something has moved in with the Barkley family. And so has terror. Child's Play. Child's Play. 
Starts Wednesday, November 9th at a theater near you. It is Uncanny X-Men number 239. It's late 1988. The cover shows a giant Mr. Sinister holding an unconscious havoc and Madeline Pryor in her famous black underboob costume as the Goblin Queen. A sinister schemes ignite Inferno, it says on the cover. When we open the book, we see civilians being attacked by inanimate objects. There's a really scary sequence. Uh, and this is by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri, who is just incredible. I love his pencils so much. There's a scary sequence about people entering an elevator. The elevator turns into a scary human face uh, and closes. You see the sound effect, pam, 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 and blood trails. Uh, but there's a janitor with headphones on that mops it up without even noticing. We move to Mr. Sinister, another place, another day, another man. He's sitting in a giant crystal throne. This guy is so much. Uh, This is drama. He's just hanging out in his house by himself, and this is the chair he chooses to sit in. He is always high drama, high camp, with his big feathered flared cape. But he's very scary. It's important to remember this man, we've had a lot of context and understanding about his origins, but at this point, he was a brand new villain, and he has a uh, a lot to say. He's not even a mutant, but we don't even know that at this point. He is a genetic, uh, obsessed with Darwinism, uh, crazy scientist, Dr. Moreau kind of stuff. He's sitting in his crystal chair, looking at a energy field filled with crystal statues of the mutants that he's studying. And I'm going to read his speech here. He says, from the moment I learned of your existence, X-Men, I knew our paths would cross as adversaries. The earth is growing too small, too crowded for mutants and humans to possibly coexist. The day of Homo sapiens is done. It is past time the species was removed from the evolutionary stage to make way for their betters. I always assumed you, humanity's self-appointed champions, even though they branded you outlaw and outcast, would be there to oppose me. It's said a man is measured by the quality of his enemies. You were the best. How I was looking forward to that ultimate test of wits and skill and strength. But now, no thanks to me, you are dead. So he believes that the X-Men are dead at this point, like the rest of the world. And I didn't say earlier, they've been affected by a magic spell cast by Roma, so they're not picked up by technology. People can't see them on on recorded devices. You gotta run into them personally if you wanna know the X-Men are alive at this point. Uh, The character Malice bursts in. This is a disembodied mutant character who can possess others. And she's been bonded into the body of Polaris for quite some time. And she's now realizing that she can't get out. And Sinister says, well, yeah, I knew that the whole time. I gave you this gift. I trapped you in this prison to increase your power. And she's furious and crying, but he basically just uh, casts her aside and makes her promise to follow him. And then we see this brilliant sequence where Sinister's obsessing over the crystal statues of the X-Men. And this is the plot device that then cuts to different uh, events happening with the X-Men as they're hanging out in their Outback era. He pulls them out one at a time, and Madeline is among them, which is fascinating, because he believes she is dead. And we will learn much later on in this event that she's a clone he created, because he's obsessed with the genetic potential of Cyclops and Jean Grey and what that can create. And this is why he has their baby, Nathan Christopher. Uh, We cut to uh, Dazzler. The episode is called Vanities. And in all her narcissistic attention-seeking glory, she's bursting into a random pub in the middle of the Australian outback. And she sings, and everyone is obsessed. It even compares her to, uh, she's singing a, a version of, uh, she, she, she rips into a rough, raunchy rendition of Proud Mary that puts Tina Turner to shame, it says, which is wonderful. Uh, her light show goes off, and she kisses Longshot passionately. 
We then go to Havoc, who is wrestling with some guilt because his powers recently lashed out and killed some mutants that had been affected by the brood. And he's really struggling with the guilt of all of this. Uh, Longshot and Dazzler pass them on his motorcycle while he's literally sitting in the desert. And then Madeline comes out of nowhere in a shining kind of phoenix-like energy, which is a very big hint about the potential of this character. And she grabs his hand and says, I worry about you. She's directly flirting. I like looking at you. Uh, and she pulls him away. We'll come back to them in a minute. Sinister's now obsessing over Storm. Storm sees some news footage that shows Cyclops and Jean Grey. And Jean Grey's her best friend, and she realizes that Jean is alive. She goes rushing as Storm booms around her until she finds Wolverine. And Wolverine admits that he suspected that Jean had been alive for a while, but he wasn't sure. And the two of them are kind of grieving over their losses. We then cut over to Rogue and Colossus having kind of a sparring session with Psylocke. Now, Psylocke is a character that got her start in the Captain Britain magazines that Chris Claremont was writing. He has now brought this character over into the X-Men, but she's kind of the newest, or she and Longshot both are kind of the newest additions to the mutant world. And she's proving pretty effective in combat. We see Carol take over Rogue's mind here because Rogue is still struggling from her recent trauma. Betsy goes from like combat armor, strips down into her bathing suit and, and goes into the water uh, and Rogue touches her, which is kind of, uh, they're, they're suspicious of her. They're trying to figure out who she is. We then cut back to Havoc who is laying in the skimpiest little black swimsuit I've ever seen, and I am here for it. He's singing uh, or listening to music. He's got a picture of he and Lorna nearby, and he starts to have a dream about Lorna who's been taken over by this darkness. And then again, suddenly there's Maddie, and she is backlit by this gorgeous sunset behind her. It startles him. He drops the picture, and it smashes. And uh, he is directly flirting with him once again. She's in a tight blue dress and heels. She's directly flirting, and he realizes it. He literally says, come on, you're my brother's wife. And Maddie's speech here is really important for this character because she's been through a lot. She says, Alex, I didn't walk out on him. I didn't abandon our baby. I didn't toss this commitment down the dumpster. If this marriage is over, it's none of my doing. All I asked from you is friendship. I thought you wanted that as well. But if I'm wrong, if I've botched my symbols with signals with another Summers brother, them's the breaks. My lousy luck. I didn't want to trouble you, Alex, or put you out on the spot. I won't any longer. And he says, wait, and uh, agrees to... Uh, <laughs> help her seek a little solace, ease her pain a little bit, and she pulls him back into the shadows of the bedroom. We now go back to Sinister, who has a lot of pods around him filled with mutant babies, and one of them is Nathan Christopher. But watching from afar is the character Nastir, who is a demon with a horse face from Limbo, who wants dead babies because he wants power, which is a very demon thing to do. Uh, Nastir's a really fun demon character. And he has made a deal with Madeline Pryor. Madeline walks out of the bed where Havoc is sleeping, and she kind of moves toward the image of Nastir, reminding him that they've made a bargain. She's now in this very skimpy black suit. Uh, her, her breasts are out. She's looking amazing. And uh, she says, I want the Marauders found so that the X-Men can pay them back for the misery they've caused. But most of all, I want my son fail in this Nastir, and I'll show you the true meaning of Inferno. So she was shot by the Marauders before, back when Sinister was weaponizing them to hunt everyone down, and her son is missing, and Jean Grey is back, and Cyclops is in the news, and she is pissed, and she just slept with his brother. So she's ready She's ready to just say, screw everything, and here I am to uh, to take control. And there's the, there's the build-up to Inferno. We get lots of good character moments and a setup of 
where everybody's at, where Sinister's at, where the demons are, and this is where we begin. I had forgotten what a good storyteller Chris Clarebot was. He's amazing. And that it fits so much exposition relatively effortlessly like like that that convention that you described of, of using the the crystal statues to uh essentially give you a very quick recap of who all these characters are and what their deal is is kind of brilliant and, and really lovely imagery just the idea of those little crystalline figures floating around him and like i like the the thing he does where he takes the gene figure and it kind of twists around and it's the madeline figure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's and, really uh, nice. Claremont really didn't want Madeline to be the clone of Jean. This was kind of an editorial thing. Cy- Cyclops left his wife and people were not very happy about it. So this is in some ways Claremont writing a story that he's been kind of forced into a corner, but he's going to make it amazing because they have to make Madeline the bad guy in order to make Scott and Jean okay. And that's, uh, that's a frustrating to, thing. Having listened to Chris Claremont talk a little bit about this era, that speech that Madeline has about her marriage, that sounds an awful lot like the the way that Chris Claremont himself talks about the editorial demands of the story. Yeah, there, there's a direct parallel. Sometimes it's tongue, tongue in cheek and sometimes it's very direct. But this issue alone, there are nine X-Men characters, plus Mr. Sinister, plus Malice, plus Nastir. And we've gotten we've gotten key moments with each of them. He's found a way to work in like here's who these characters are, here's what they're going through as we start this event. It's smart. Twenty two pages, man, and and look at all he was able to do. And something else about Madeline. Sorry to go back on it for a second. Something I noticed because I used to read X Men Classic. Madeline didn't always look exactly like Jean. She was somebody who looked kind of like Jean. Like she was another pretty redhead, if if I remember correctly. And I think. As the storyline goes on, at least once X Factor starts, they start making her look more and more and more like Jean to the point where, yeah, it looks exactly the same. Yeah, to take a step back, Jean is gone. Uh, Cyclops is grieving. He goes home to visit his grandparents and meets this gorgeous redhead. And he has a thing for redheads. And uh, they have this incredible, intense courtship and attraction. He gets married and has a baby. And he's, you know, he's lost his love, but he's moved on. And now all of these stories are being added later. I do not believe it was the intention from the beginning to have Madeline be the clone of Jean Grey. But now we're seeing Madeline really reckon with what Claremont is reckoning with. The idea that this woman has no identity because she's had something else. And so he creates Mr. Sinister to do all of that, which is so powerful. Because this is like the biggest X-Men villain outside of Magneto uh, ever, you know. He's, he's huge. Yep. There is sort of a meta story going on here, too. It's like, okay, you want Jean Grey back. Here's the consequences of that. <laughs> and back to the issue proper, uh, you, you pointed us out. The beginning of this is fantastic. Like, if, if if I was picking this up in trade, and like the beginning of this, the way it starts, a heat wave in New York City, that is the perfect way to start this crossover. And then the elevator scene. Once I read the elevator scene, I decided I was going to start a kill count for this crossover. <laughs> and that right there goes on the kill count. Well, down. it is canon later that no humans actually die during Inferno. They're they're tortured, they're harmed, they're they're put through incredible awful things, but when you read the end of this, nobody actually dies. Oh no, Which... those those people are totally dead. <laughs> those people are dead. <laughs> Like that is a family of five just getting eaten by an elevator. It's such an inventive sequence, though, because it's like something out of 
a Nightmare on Elm Street movie or The Shining or something like that. So the the it's what horror sort of looked like at that point in the eighties. Yeah. It's scary. It's a really scary beginning. And these these like objects attacking people are all over the Marvel universe uh, during this event. Uh, you read read Annie Nascenti's Daredevil for an example. It's like there's a really scary that, imagery. That's You'll such get to- an underrated run. God, I love it. I interviewed Annie about her Daredevil run, and it's it's one of my favorites of all time. I love it. I, I've always said that it suffered in terms of perception from having to follow Miller, um, but I, but I always liked that one. But a female writer in the 80s making Daredevil her own? Incredible. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you mentioned this in your sort of description, but I love Mr. Sinister's look so much. It is so flamboyant and over-the-top and part mad scientist, part evil vampire. He's just great. Plus, he has the same cape as your favorite Batman. <laughs> I, I am a, uh, I'm a fan of the Nightfall era of, of Batman, and it does seem like Sinister and Azrael have similar uh, cape designs. <laughs> it's an incredible design. But speaking of the 80s, I was not expecting Malice to show up. Oh, yeah. I didn't know she'd cross over from the Fantastic Four to the X-Men. That was... Well, she was in the X-Men first. They later bring her into the FF. Oh, see, I just know her from the John Byrne run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and well, and so uh, I think but in terms of Fantastic Four crossovers, it's I think Byrne's Fantastic Four run that brings Jean Grey back to set up for what, what eventually plays out uh, here. Malice has appeared, I don't know, 30 to 40 times. And she's an X-Men all the way from like 210. And then she's an X-Factor. She doesn't show up in FF until years later. Oh, you know what? I think actually the Malice that's in FF is a different character, I think. Uh, I'm going to look it up while we're talking. That That is entirely possible. I'm going to look uh, it up while we're talking. We'll, we'll find it. Give me a second. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think Jim Shooter would allow that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. The other, the other malice that uh, that infects uh, uh, Susan Storm is a, a separate character. That's what it's wild that there are not just the same name but similarities of concept, though. Yeah, that malice. I think it, I haven't researched this in a long time. I think it's like the dark side of the Invisible Woman because, uh, right, like her hate side gets released or something. Right, it <laughs> it's is like her onslaught. Psychological. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, because that's where she gets the really crazy costume and and with the boob window that's a four yeah yep yep i had a handful of those issues as a kid (laughs) um i also just in general i I mentioned sinister's look but really visually this was just such a good time for the x-men i like all of these outfits a whole lot it's not what most people my age sort of in their their 30s necessarily think of first for the x-men i think the jim lee designs sort of supplanted a lot of this but but for me, I, I just love all of these outfits. Like that rogue outfit is fantastic. I'm sorry. It is. It, I like the green and black a lot. Um, but uh, okay. I, I like the Psylocke outfit. So should we talk about the most problematic encounter in this book? Uh, sure. The hell, Alex Summers? <laughs> like, I mean. No, I mean. It's your brother's wife. I did a trial of it. Havoc on my show as well. There are three <laughs> core components to this character. He is the little brother who will never measure up. He is the company man who always tries to do the right thing, but always gets it wrong. 
And he's the powerhouse that always <laughs> ends up trying to contain everything and just screwing it up every time. Uh, he he's the tryhard of the X Men, and I love him so much. He's he's Charlie Brown, but like really hot and really powerful. <laughs> What's funny is this scene between him and Madeline is the intersection of all three of those things. He's trying he's, very he's, hard to live up to his brother's example in many many ways and keep everything together and make everyone happy. I heard my friend Sarah Century describe, I think it was in this issue. She says, Havoc running up a hill toward a beautiful woman that he can never reach. That like it perfectly captures his character. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the whole time he's dressed as though he just walked out of one of the X-Men or Marvel swimsuit special issues. You're my brother's wife. I can't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He he didn't take much convincing. Well, it's that's Claremont's economy of storytelling. If this was a 2023 comic that conversation would have played out across like four or five issues uh when havoc lands in the mutant x universe if you guys have ever read that it's a howard mackey series from later he winds up in a body of like an evil version of himself that's like happily married to madeline and they have a baby that they've named scott (laughs) and then you watch him in like zeb wells recent like the dark web and hellions era where he's obsessed with madeline uh steve fox is getting ready to write uh, dark x-men which has the two of them in limbo like forming a team of villains it, he, I, I love these two together actually i think it's great I, I i think it makes perfect sense if you're going to go with the story that scott abandons his family which was apparently necessary for x-factor to happen i think this is the best possible way of sort of following that up well and havoc's only two major love interests outside of this are polaris and wasp <laughs> which is a wild <laughs> is there a well-adjusted summer's brother uh n- no i mean cyclops is the most well-adjusted but no that that's that's disturbing <laughs> the other later one is what vulcan vulcan yep yeah, yeah. no that, that man's crazy he, he's messed up yeah and then there were all the potential summer's brothers who are not actually Summers Brothers, but also are all messed up. Oh, God, Adam X. Have you done a trial episode for Adam X yet? No, I'm working my way up chronologically. So we're still, I'm only doing characters right now. I do one a month. I'm only doing characters that debuted in the 60s right now. And that'll, I'm going to be on that for a while. So we won't get to the others for a bit. (laughs) So speaking of Scott, we should probably go ahead and take another quick break and return with X Factor 33. Right after these messages. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to The Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Garfield, I need your help. Hmm, that goes without saying. We have to tell cats out there about new Alpo cat food. Hey, cat food is for the unimaginative. Imagine this. Alpo cat food so full of nutritious proteins... Every serving's like a balanced seven-course meal. And the taste. I'll be the judge of that. So, Garfield, 
What would you tell cats about Alpo? Two! Demand seconds. New Alpo cat food. Canned and dry varieties. Tested and mm. approved. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our next issue for today is X-Factor Volume 1, number 33. It's written by Louis Simonson. Pencils by Walt Simonson. Inks by Bob Wycheck. The colorist is Petra Scottese. Letters by Joe Rosen. And the editor is Bob Harris. And... First off, we've got a really great cover here, sort of a solid red background, but with blue furry beast bursting through the cover right at you with a lot of debris and stuff flying around as well. It's not a complicated cover, but it's, it catches your eye. Uh, and then on the interiors, we open with a newscast live on the scene being interrupted by the Alliance of Evil. <laughs> the Alliance of Evil, that's right, who are angry about the Mutant Registration Act. Frenzy takes control of the broadcast and tells the audience watching at home that if they can't even be kept in prison, there's no way that the government can force the Alliance to sign over to the act. And they challenge X-Factor to try and stop. Meanwhile, Jean Grey and Iceman have taken some of the children that they have taken in out for clothes. They're shopping uh, because they're about to start school. Uh, which I guess would be summer school. And yeah, no, it's the boarding school they're being sent to. Oh, that's right. They're being sent to a boarding they're school. They're being sent to a that's boarding right. school. Yep. Yes. And, and as this is going on, they're talking about the registration at Boom Boom wonders if X-Factor will sign on or not. And she wonders whether any of her peers will participate in the registration. Just then, the sweater that she is uh, trying on tries to attack her, and she blows it up with one of her pellets. And... Nobody believes her, because why would anyone believe you if you say that a sweater attacks you? Bobby starts to lecture her on recklessness, which is kind of hilarious. And just then, Tower of the Alliance of Evil attacks them. Meanwhile, back on ship, the sentient ship that X-Factor uh, lives on, uh, Cyclops is basically holding vigil over Hank Beast, uh, as has already been discussed, was uh, affected by first the uh, Four Horsemen, uh, of Apocalypse, and then later, I forget what villain it was. Infectia. Infectia, yes. Uh, oh and so he's he's sort of flickering between his blue furry form and his more human-looking form. The ship keeps increasing the restraints because he is struggling against them. Scott notices on television that the Alliance of Evil is attacking and that they're calling out X-Factor. Back in the city, Gene and Iceman try to fight the Alliance but find themselves outnumbered because Scott and Beast are not with them. The children try to help uh, except for Rusty who uh, stays back. He's the oldest of them and is actually wanted by the police because of a previous encounter where uh, I think someone died and se separate from all of that in a Kansas City suburb the Orphan Maker and Nanny attack the home of the Blakes they're seeking children who will eventually be mutants, so mutants who have the X gene. Orphan Maker is set to collect the children and also to kill the parents. Uh, and Nanny refers to these children as lost boys and lost girls. Back in Manhattan, where the fight is happening, Rusty decides that he can't take it anymore. He has to help his friends. Uh, he puts on a makeshift mask and jumps into the battle. Frenzy recognizes him and extends an offer for him to join their group. Cyclops is watching helplessly from the ship. 
He shouts for Rusty not to join. Yes, this is a really good cameraman who's who's capturing this footage because he's getting all these details. Just then, the beast screams out one last time, changes to his blue furry form, and breaks free of his restraints with his intelligence restored to normal. Beast says he feels better than ever, and the two of them rush out to help their uh, team fight the Alliance. Before Rusty can give an answer to that offer, Beast and Cyclops show up. Everyone's sort of surprised to see Beast in his furry form. Factor and the Alliance sort of continue their fight. In the midst of the fight, Tower hands Rusty a copy of his wanted poster, reminding him that he's a criminal uh, and that criminals shouldn't be working with heroes. Uh, But the X-Factor does defeat the Alliance, just in time for the Freedom Force to arrive and take them away. The Freedom Force, of course, being the the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, comments on how this this group is sort of infringing on their trademark. (laughs) The names are a little too similar. Mystique warns X-Factor that there's a deadline for the Mutant Registration Act, that they need to make a decision. And X-Factor agrees to sign the act but only under their code names. They assert a right to maintain their private identities. And Rusty also agrees. Rusty says that he thinks it's against his rights to be forced to register himself with the government as a weapon, that that he doesn't believe mutants are weapons. He destroys the wanted poster he was handed, says he does not intend to sign, but that he will try to clear his name of the charges against him. And then finally, at the Boston headquarters of the right, Cameron Hodge prepares for the arrival of the man formerly known as Warren Worthington, now called Death. There's a lot of characters in this one. Yes, Um, and some of whom I only barely know. (laughs) Or if I do know them, I know much later versions. So again, I um, made an effort to keep track of the kill count. Now, I know I know you told me that none of the people die in this crossover, <laughs> and I'll, I'll try to give my disappointment in that, but um, <laughs> we do get two deaths by Orphan Maker in this issue. Right. Um, oh, those guys are dead. <laughs> oh, thank right. goodness. So specifically, humans affected by the demons are, are not actually dead, but, but in some other suspended state of torture. Well, thank goodness. Thank. <laughs> Nanny is a woman who is dressed in an egg and she spouts nursery rhymes and she has this incredible ability to use technology. Uh, she's very, very smart with uh, regressing people to infancy and or aging people and or creating armors or or powered uh, powered costumes for people to use. Uh, you don't know a lot about her history here. Frankly, we still don't know a lot in the comics now. But Orphan Maker, there's there's a lot of comments on what it means to be a mutant. Orphan Maker is a character that will later be tied to Sinister. He's a, a mutant who, if his power activates, it will kill everyone on Earth. And Nanny is the only person that can give him a home. She has created a suit of armor that, if it is breached, he will literally kill everyone on Earth. And uh, and she's given so he's this kind of adolescent who's being raised by a very odd mother, but he would be dead or contained or responsible for genocide otherwise. Uh, so these two these two are fascinating. I love these characters. That is that's a lot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the part that feels sort of the most. It's one of those things that that I notice sometimes in Marvel comics of a certain era especially when there's a lot of interconnected storylines, that's the one that feels most like it's sort of setting up for something later. Um, the, the rest of this is sort of 
dealing with fallout from a previous story or sort of continuing a previous story, that's the section that feels like it's setting up something new. Some of it is. Some of it doesn't get picked up literally for decades. Nanny, Nanny and Orphan Maker oh, wow. have a lot of time in the modern comics, in Hellions, and then in the Sabretooth uh, books. Okay. Uh, but yeah, some some of these stories, they kind of become ancillary villains that are just uh, forgotten for a long time. But we match that theme with, uh, I, I hope it's okay, I'm talking this much. X Factor oh, yeah. has literally rescued children. Uh, and, and here's where I do a lot of queer analysis on my theory. We have a lot of kids that are disowned by their parents for being gay or trans. And you need someone to find you uh, a home or safety. These are kids that would have been weaponized, captured, turned into villains unless they were saved. And some of these are characters that were very 80s present, uh, like Rusty, who uh, tried to join the military, but his powers activated. And then he had to run away. So he's wanted because of this. But he's been hunted for being a mutant multiple times by literally villains that are now turned into agents by the government, which is where, you know, Blob and Crimson Commando and Mystique come into it. We've got Skids, who is homeless. We've got Boom Boom, who was, it's alleged she was working as a prostitute in the streets, like kind of trying to survive. We've got Richter, who watched his dad get murdered in front of him, and he was almost captured and weaponized. Uh, We've got Leech, who was a Morlock living in the tunnels. We've got Artie, who is a kid whose dad tried to turn him into a weapon, basically. And these are the six kids that are running around these issues. And X Factor literally saved them. But now the uh, now the writers need to put them. They, we we got to write them off because there's too many characters in this book. <laughs> so let's send them to school. But uh, but these th- that theme of what it means to be a mutant. Nanny has a very different methodology than X Factor does. She's taking kids from safe homes and murdering their parents because I I can do a better job than they can while I'm spouting a nursery rhyme. But there's this theme of uh, what it means to be a mutant. And now the government's trying to make you register, and you already know that's not going to turn out well. No. The the opening scenes there with uh, the members of X Factor uh, kind of acting as surrogate parental figures for these kids and, and somewhere between parent and teacher, uh, it feels almost like a prototype for what Grant Morrison would later do with New X-Men, where the, the, where the, the sort of classic members of the team are running the school. One of the actually earliest issues of X Factor I've read was the first issue where they very much say this is an answer to the X-Men book of the time where, you know, the original five X-Men look at the, look at the current X-Men are like, hold on Magneto's in charge. Uh, (laughs) Fuck. No, I, (laughs) <laughs> we're we're gonna do our own school and it's gonna have hookers and blackjack wait no actually yes it does have hookers <laughs> and blackjack <laughs> uh, but th- th- it's very much the hey we're gonna do what charles xavier did but we're gonna do it better and well and boom boom was only prostituting herself in order to survive in the streets which which Absolutely. is kind of the again no, there, there's there's a lot to analyze there the oh, uh, shame sex workers on this show at all. <laughs> the flip side of that is the Alliance of Evil, who in their original appearance, they are working for Apocalypse and they are literally drug addicts. They are uh, they are there's a character named there's a character named Michael Nolan who is providing them with supercharges of their power and they are addicted. And Apocalypse is making them work for him basically in order to keep Nolan uh, powered up. And Nolan is a drug addict himself. Uh, so these characters coming back and being the ones that are like, uh, can I swear on your show? I keep not Absolutely. swearing. Go for it. Okay. Go for I've, it. I've avoided <laughs> swearing about a hundred times, but they're like, fuck the government. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? We're not fucking registering. Like, we're going to fight the cameras. We're going to stand up and make a public declaration. Come and stop us. Go ahead. And uh, you kind of get it. Sort of like in a way that like Magneto was right. These are the, these are the people protesting. It's, um, 
it's the again, I may I do a lot of queer analysis. It's the people storming the Catholic Church and doing the sit-in to say, you you deserve gay people deserve rights, we deserve love, we deserve resources. Uh, but they're doing it in a really violent way. And this is the most 80s team ever. Uh t- I hate time shadow, but look at Stinger. She's like uh she's like Madonna circa 1985, frenzy's all in leather. <laughs> they're they're amazing characters. I love these guys. Uh, and uh, and they're 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 holding Trish Tilby, uh, who is the opportunistic uh, uh, newswoman who becomes Beast's love interest. Uh, they're holding mm-hmm. her by the throat, which I kind of love too. <laughs> it, it is extremely. And I, I didn't ridiculous. really put it. I, I didn't put it together until you were sort of listing it out like that. But th- this book really is sort of going down the checklist of eighties exploitation tropes. Hmm. The Registration Act is a huge theme through all of this. What's the right way to fight against it? Uh, and on Krakoa in the current era, we see the X-Men uh, sacrificing their human names and adopting mutant names, which is, again, like a very queer identity or even a trans identity. I'm not going to be who you expected me to be. So, like, we will register with our mutant names, but we're not doing it on your terms. Uh, this this idea of Xavier's dream expanded in these ways is really interesting. I think the themes in this this set of issues in X Factor is really good. Uh, Louis Simonson uh, does an amazing job, and they do not know Archangel is alive. Uh, by the way, Cameron Hodge is so gay. If you go onto the last page, oh, yeah. he's having his servants like dress him in golden armor as he rants about his old boyfriend Angel. <laughs> right, right. Well, and and I mean, we'll get there in in the other issue, but he, he's literally saying things like. You picked her instead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other thing here is Beast uh, being blue and furry. It's a big deal again because he's been human for a while. And the fans didn't yep, like right. They prefer him blue. So him going back blue on this cover is kind of like, whoa, look, it's blue Beast and back. My understanding was the the his uh, reverting to the more human form was also editorial mandate. That that was sort mm-hmm. of we're putting the team back together the way they were back then. I mean, not um, only is Beast Beast is blue and furry, but he was also an Avenger. So if you want mm-hmm. X Factor to be this incognito group, you can't have the blue beast as part of them. And and uh, one of the uh, Alliance members calls that out, uh, like calls him like a wannabe Avenger or something like that. That being said, we should probably move on to the next issue. So yes. we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be right back with X Factor number thirty four right after these messages. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spinoff series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories, formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? In the new movie, The Land Before Time, Littlefoot, Sarah, Ducky, and Spike share an incredible journey along the way 
they become best friends. Now we'll always be together. And now these lovable characters can be your child's friends too. With a pizza from Pizza Hut, a land before time dinosaur is only 99 cents. So come to Pizza Hut. Your friends are waiting. We'll always be together. Pizza Hut! Welcome back, Tomb Believers. Our next issue is yet another issue of X-Factor. It's X-Factor 34, and death shall fall. It is the same creative team as last time, and we pick right up where we left off with Archangel, sorry, death, attacking the right, and really just beating the heck out of some smiley face robots for a long while here, while Candy Southern is held hostage by a ranting Hodge. There is a bunch of other stuff with backstory with Orphan Maker, stealing an infant in, I believe it's China. A demon visits Hodge at one point, reminding them about some deals they have. I'm sure that won't come up again later. And then, of course, you have Archangel. Archangel fighting demons! And just, like, just whip them all to hell, squish them like bugs. It's an amazing little fight scene there. We get some recap of how exactly Archangel ended up like, looking like this. Sorry, death. I'm sorry. My 90s <laughs> kid's brain. Like, you know, I can't want to call him Archangel. But, of course, he's not Archangel yet. He's not yet. Uh, right. Uh, we get, Like I said, we get... He doesn't three. really know what he is at this point, which is kind of his whole deal. We get a bunch of references to, you know, how he got this way. For those of you who are just picking this up from Inferno. And... The demons get another call, so they run out, run away through a portal. Uh, Scott and Jean get a lead on Scott's missing son. Apparently, he is being kept at the orphanage that Scott grew up in. Uh, more about that next issue. And then, of course, we have the confrontation between uh, Death and Hodge, where, you know, Hodge basically does his whole true love confession to Warren, and Warren is having none of it. And then Warren breaks Hodge's fancy armor, but Hodge gets his revenge by yanking the wires that have been connected to Candy Southern. And apparently those wires have been keeping her alive, because Archangel realizes that she is dead, and actually shows a little bit of humanity there. Something we have not seen a lot from the characters so far. And holding the now dead Candy Southern... Uh, we see Archangel about to stand off against the rest of the right. Okay, we got to talk about the name, the right. It's these giant green soldiers with painted smiles on faces. Why are they named the right? I mean, um, because they are very much a commentary on um, right-wing extremists. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right-wing extremists are associated with, like, uber-conservatism, literally white supremacy, uh, we're talking in a day where Nazis are picketing at drag queen story hour for children. Uh, and it's the far right. When you're creating a threat for the X-Men, uh, you go with legal policy. So the groups that have like uh, a legal presence that are legislating against mutants. You go with extreme political movements. And this is literally called the right. It's not subtle at all. <laughs> You go with groups that try to weaponize mutants. This is Genosha. We make you our slaves or the U-men. Like we steal your body parts and graft them onto ourselves. And then you literally go with Christianity. You have groups that are churches, the church of humanity, the purifiers who are fighting like biblical causes, which are all the groups that fight against queer people. 
Uh, the name, the right, and it's the gay guy who's envious of mutants who runs it and founded it. It's fascinating, and it's not subtle at all. <laughs> you, you just kind of want to take a stack of like Chris Claremont books and just chuck them at the person who says, "Keep your politics and non-comic books," because right, like. If this story had happened in 2023, somebody said, oh, that's too on the nose. Like, where have you been? We're only a few years away. You referenced the Extinction Agenda earlier, which ends with a virus against mutants getting released, which is literally a commentary on the AIDS crisis, which is the same era that's founded here. The the, the queer identity and the racial identity of uh, mutants in the Marvel Universe and the way they tell these stories, there's a reason these resonate so much with people. And that the that the rights sort of look uh, are these sort of smiling faces feels like some sort of commentary on the Reagan era, <laughs> like the sort of transformation of conservatism in that time. Uh huh. And like Jerry Falwell and, you know, people like that. Mm hmm. Um, guises of Christianity, pretending that people who are different don't exist, letting them die, mm-hmm. uh, legislating against them. It's, it's, it's not subtle at all as you take it era by era. It's very smart. And again, the X-Men just came out of Genosha, which is literally let's wipe your minds and turn you into our slaves to keep our way of life happy, which is a direct commentary on slavery uh, and, and erasure of identity. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to think for, for the time period, maybe, uh, things like apartheid were sort of on their minds as they were creating this sort of foreign place for that story to happen. Mm -hmm. So go to page two for just a second. Cameron Hodge has literally dressed in his armor and is wearing a hood that covers his face that is very Ku Klux Klan-y, if you will. And Mm -hmm. he, he has a woman helpless beneath him that he's ranting to angels fighting the right. He's or death is fighting the right. Where's candy Southern. And he says, your lover candy Southern is here. Mutant many stories below a human who loved below her station, who sullied the purity of the human race by her liaison with you. She has been the subject of our right experiments kept alive only through the ingenuity of right technology. We have sacrificed her on the altar of human knowledge. She's redeemed. I mean, I could go on from here, but the the Ku Klux Klan would not only hunt down people who were African-American, but also white people who supported African-Americans. And this idea yep. of, I mean, this happened in World War II. We could go on and on. It's not subtle storytelling, though. It's really, right. it's, like, it's a gut punch because Candy dies here. Yeah, uh, She's a beloved character who's been around for a long time. She led the Defenders. Uh, she's Angel's like the love of his life. She's a, a a wonderful character, and she's dead. It's it's a terrible sacrifice. And I, you know, I went to Wikipedia once, uh, or Marvel Wiki once. I was done reading this issue. Says there's no way this is actually the death of Candy Southern. But no, she does not come back. Well, she they do give yeah. her a tribute issue. I think it's Uncanny X Men three hundred eight, where she comes back as a member of the Phalanx uh, and basically tells Warren, "I loved you," and then dies anyway. So she does come back one more time, but yeah, this is this is where she's gone. And I love this character. I want to write if I ever write for Marvel, I will bring her back. <laughs> <laughs> so besides that, there's not really a lot to talk about in the issue because it is really a huge fight scene. It is it is death fucking things up. First, he's fucking up demons, and then he's fucking up right soldiers. And uh, it's beautifully done. I mean, the other unsubtle piece is Cameron Hodge has literally made a deal with demons. We will give you immortality, but you have to sacrifice babies to us in order to achieve that. We will help you get your goals. 
uh, and which is a commentary again on the extreme conservatism. I will propose to have certain values. I'm pr- I'm like fighting for human lives, but I'm going to allow these children or these babies to die so that I can have power. Uh, it's 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 uncomfortable. I hope I'm not being too political <laughs> as I lay. No, this the is group is, I, I mean, group is called. I'm the right there with you. <laughs> I'm sorry, but in current politics, if you're not fucking mad right now, you're not paying attention. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, and it's one of those things where, as relevant as the story was then, it's kind of depressing the degree to which it has continued to be relevant. Very, um, very much so. It's a beautiful issue. It really is very pretty. It is. And, and, and relevant relevant to the event, I think, is that we do get a little bit more of Nastir. And so we're getting this interconnectedness of all of the different people that the demons are having dealings with. Um, and, and that there is something bigger at play that's sort of moving all of these pieces into place. Nastir has sent his demons to fight, to find the innocents, because Hodge never got them, which is what they mm-hmm. were promised. And Nanny and the Orphan Maker are looking for the same ones, while Scott is also looking for his baby. Uh, can I right. give spoilers for a future episode? Go for it. I mean, this is going sure. to result in Archangel, or excuse me, well, death choosing to kill Cameron Hodge. He slices off his head with his wings, but Hodge remains alive because he made this deal with the demons. Uh, so it's it's a big turn for the character Warren as well, uh, which you'll see, you'll review this later in your show, I, I presume. Yeah. Um, I, one little aside, uh, something a little bit of a lighter note. I'm just imagining like Tony Stark seeing Hodge's armor and just pissing himself laughing. Because <laughs> as high tech as it is, it does seem like it's sort of at a lower level than some of the other armored designs we've seen in Marvel at this point. Yeah. It, it's, it's very much that like he, he, he bought Iron Man armor off wish. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I'll say about Hodge and we, we can move on. There is a long history again, back to queer theory of closeted queer Republicans uh, I hope it's okay to say Republicans who will uh, like they're having secret gay trysts and cheating on their wives and have like young lovers, but they are legislating against queer people writing policies. Uh, uh, it, it's it's very much the deal with the devil thing while they're hiding in plain sight. And there's a lot of that related to the Cameron Hodge character. When on my own show, for for any of my listeners who are here listening, I keep talking about how I can't wait to get farther in the books because we get to explore headier <laughs> themes. <laughs> I mean, we've we've got the Sentinels in the '60s, which is kind of the biggest uh, way that that goes. But uh, we're getting into the early '70s now, so um, that starts to take form a little bit. But it's not a while. It's not for a while still where we get the really uh, incredible stories about what it means to be mutants in this in this world you know sure i mean and in terms of that real world context that you just mentioned we're in south carolina we know what you're talking about i'm in utah (laughs) oh my god (laughs) i am am a i am a gay man married and raising two queer children in utah (laughs) yeah yeah so yes we speak the same language i promise (laughs) (laughs) just on a superficial level i always loved the the death archangel design it just looks cool and and i like this moment of of storytelling for warren where as i suggested uh at the beginning he he doesn't really know who or what he is at this point he doesn't know how he fits into the world anymore and it seems like candy at up to this point was sort of a lifeline that he was holding on to that linked him back to his humanity and with her being gone it raises 
raises some interesting possibilities going forward. I'm looking forward to seeing where things go with him. From Well, if you want to hear this explored for two and a half hours, we did a, a trial of Warren Worthington on my show. <laughs> this era is brilliant because he's existed in the comics for the longest time, but he he's mm-hmm. the angel. He's the beacon yeah. of hope, but he's also the weakest member of the team. And so to but he has no offensive powers. To strip him of everything, his parents are dead, his company is corrupt, his wings are chopped off, and then to create him into this like angel of death instead, because that's the other version. You've got the holy angels in the Bible, and then you've got the angels with the flaming swords, with the destructive powers. Uh, To give that character this arc is brilliant, and he's never escaped it in the comics. Uh, he keeps going back to this darkness over and over again in the subsequent decades. It's it's why they kept on giving him a bazooka in the old the old X Men comics, or, like, or in the sixties his uh, his gun that fired ping pong balls full of gas. <laughs> it, it later creative teams try to pick up on this and and go back to it in in some ways. And the the thing that I always thought had potential but maybe didn't get executed as well as it could have was the period of time where he was almost like lycanthropy. Where he was shifting back and forth between angel and archangel mm-hmm. without much control over the transformation, uh, which I always thought was sort of an interesting idea, even as I wasn't in love with a lot of the stories where it was happening. You're you're a big archangel fan though, while whereas I was I always liked the visual of the classic angel up to the point where I had the I had the very nice Marvel Legends figure, but I made sure okay. I got the blue uniform. Right. Because I, I didn't like the red uniform, even though it's just a color swap. This is uh God, we could get up in, on the weeds in here, but I'll keep this brief. This <laughs> is this is part of Lee what makes Wolverine so great is it's the heroic side and the darker nature or more poignantly, the character Wolvesbane, who exists in the right. New Mutants at this time, who is literally raised by a pastor who taught her to be or who told her she was evil for being a mutant. Uh, and then she has this wolf side where when she changes form, she feels free. But when she's in her human side, she feels haunted. And she literally later eats her father. <laughs> it's, uh, there's there's a lot there's a lot about that character I love too. So uh, again, oh, yeah. I could get lost there, but but that dual nature uh, is a huge theme in the X Men as well. Another paragon of great teacher student relationships. <laughs> um, but listeners, you know this episode is dropping June seventh. Let us know what you think. I will go ahead and post a Instagram poll, a Instagram real poll in our Instagram. Do you prefer? the metal winged archangel or the feather winged angel and uh, make let, make your opinion known there uh but that being said we're going to go ahead and move right along to our next issue that's x factor number 35 right after these messages where am i in the palace of glittering delights who are you i am andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes i have covered everything genre related from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of the amazing Spider-Man via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan, you never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. Friday's the fastest night on television with some fast pranks and fast laughs on Night Court. I've been booby-trapped! And it's a fast trip to Mexico. You just ate your last burrito. For Beverly Hills Buns. Then it's Don Johnson. I'm just a dumb cop. And Sheena Easton. And I'm a chick singer. In a second look at the wedding of the year. The romantic Miami Vice on one fast night next. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our final issue for this episode. 
is X Factor Volume 1, number 35. This is, again, written by Louise Simonson, but this time the pencils are by uh, Terry Shoemaker, inks by Joseph Rubenstein, colors, uh, again, by Petra Scotes, uh, letters by Joe Rosen. Uh, the editors are Bob Harris, Daryl Edelman, and Mark Brunewald. Okay, so we open again in New York with uh, Iceman and Beast. They are dealing with a piece of construction equipment that seems to have gone haywire, developed a mind of its own. They uh, start attacking people in the area. And so Iceman sort of freezes the, the area to cool people down from the heat wave that is still affecting New York. And as they leave the scene, they kind of wonder what's causing all of these weird occurrences where inanimate objects are attacking people. Uh, meanwhile, Cyclops and Jean have arrived at the orphanage where Cyclops was raised, which is in, I think, Nebraska. And as they are wandering into the facility, Scott starts flashing back. He, he's remembering things from his past, things that, that are in conflict with other memories that he has. So when exactly his powers manifested, how he was treated by his fellow orphans, what kinds of, of tests and experiments were being run on him. But but all of it is very vague, and he doesn't really remember who or what was sort of behind all of this. On the main floor of the orphanage, they find that all of the people there, both the staff and the children, uh, like in a daze, they can't see them or interact with them, really. Jean makes a connection with uh, one child who's a, a telepath and, and is able to sense that she's frightened. And as a quick of, note, this uh, is an era where Jean has lost a lot of her powers. Yeah. She's, she's not telepathic at this era. She's only telekinetic. Yep. Right, right. But but she's able to pick up that the, the kid is frightened of something in the basement. And so they figure that's where they should investigate. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nanny's ship, arrives at the orphanage to collect the child mutants that are being targeted by the, the demon uh, Nastir. And she selects some of the lost boys and girls, uh, Shatterbox 1 and 2, Speed Freak, Big Top, and Monitor, and sends them to accompany her and the orphan maker on their operation to claim those children. Uh, Scott and Jean find a secret elevator that takes them to a complex it is run by more staff members that are sort of operating in a daze. They find children, mutant children, who are being held in tanks. They find Scott's son, Christopher, and Gene can pick up from him a sense of, of impending danger. And, and so she and Scott try to get out of the orphanage with him. Just then, the demons arrive to uh, take the infant mutants. Scott and Gene are trying to free Christopher from his tank. Nanny, Orphan Maker, and the Lost Boys and Girls come to take the children. And so Cyclops and Jean are fighting the Lost Boys and Girls and Orphan Maker. They sort of pick up a little bit of what's going on with Nanny, that, that she's trying to essentially rescue mutant children. But they're, they're fighting to keep her from taking Christopher as well. As this is going on, the demons also swoop in to claim the children in the struggle. The demons get their hands on Christopher and escape. Uh, Jean re uh, realizes that Shatterbox uh, number two is one of her relatives, Galen. Niece. Niece, yes. Nanny and the Lost Boys and Girls escape, and Jean is sort of left shocked by this realization. But 
despite all of this, she is somehow still psychically linked to Christopher Summers, who is mentally screaming to be rescued. And she tells Scott that the demons mean to kill him. Dun, dun, dun. Good issue. We get a Cyclops and Gene focus where everything converges at the orphanage. It's sinister, it's the demons, it's Annie and the orphan maker, and it all blows up. And, you know, I I told Trey I'm sorry that you have to summarize this one. Not because it's bad. It's actually really great. There's a lot going on. There's a lot. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that Scott Summer's backstory has never made much sense. <laughs> It's adding a lot of context as far as why he struggles so much. Uh, Jay Edidin has famously uh, said that they, they perceive Cyclops to be neurodivergent or, or a little bit autistic. And you look at the trauma of all of that and the way that he interacts with the world and you start to go, oh, even though that wasn't the intention of the creators from the beginning. But this is a really powerful issue for Cyclops because he's taking Gene, the woman he loves, back to the place where he spent so many years in trauma and alone. Uh, and his son is there. His child has been taken to the same place by the by the monster who has been interfering with his life secretly for all these years. Uh, so there's there's a, there's a lot packed into these the, the dialogue here. It's pretty powerful. I, I really really like that. Of course, it makes what Sinister has done to Scott his whole life, and to a certain extent, Charles Xavier has done to Scott his whole life, all the more really fucking terrible yeah yeah it's really yeah. awful <laughs> and you start and, to have and, more sympathy and, for cyclops as a result and it it's it kind of informs 
his inability to let go and process loss and, and all that the, the the way that he interacts with the world around him through all of these awful things as sort of a teenager and, and young adult becomes way more interesting with with some of that fleshed out also I did a, hyper fixation especially on redheads yes well not only on redheads but on leadership on being perfect yep. yeah yeah. Uh, if you read Marvel Snapshots X-Men number one, it's I, I reviewed this book on my show. It's written by Jay Edited, and you can see the neurodivergence explored there in Cyclops' childhood at the orphanage, and it's really fascinating. But uh, but at, the, at this point, Claremont's only, or well, Simonson here is laying the seeds of Sinister, uh, but we don't have a lot of context for all of it. But these, these children being experimented on by this monster... Sinister was also widely involved in Xavier's childhood, which is something they add later as well. Uh, so th- th- this guy's been around for a long time and he's scary. <laughs> <laughs> I also love obscure characters. The lost boys and girls here are literally characters that we really never see again. But Jean's sister, Sarah, uh, is kind of an ancillary background character. We never see her much. She basically died. Her house exploded and we've just kind of never seen her. It, we get off panel a reference that the Phalanx killed her later. But her children are missing, Joey and Galen. And these kids are later killed by the Shi'ar Death Commandos in that famous Claremont story. But we, uh, Joey and Galen are Speed Freak 1 and Speed Freak, uh, excuse me, Shatterbox 1 and Shatterbox 2. We, It looks like Joey has super strength and Galen has flight. I'm waiting for these characters to be resurrected on Krakoa. We also meet Speed Freak, who's a super fast kid. Uh, monitor, who seems to be able to monitor other people's life signs. And then my favorite, there's an obscure mutant here named Mutant, or excuse me, uh, named Big Top, who can uh, make her teddy bear giant and fight people. <laughs> which I love, I love so that see power set. These images of this yeah. giant teddy bear in the middle of the fight. That's great. That's a great. Yeah, vision. I was going to ask. I was going to ask about uh, Shatterbox because it did seem to me like their powers were sort of unspecified compared to the others. Correct. They get rescued and then given to Jean's parents to be raised. And then they're all murdered by the Shi'ar uh, many years later. It's it's pretty awful. <laughs> yeah, sucks they had to share a code name, too. <laughs> <laughs> and then the demons have the baby and Inferno is on. Yeah. So a lot of this really is sort of maybe not prologue, but prelude. Uh, it's, it's, it's a continuation of stories, up. but it's a building. the The match has been struck, and the fire is gathering. You know, uh, these these babies. By the way, uh, this is also spoilers. At the end of Inferno, they're kind of just lost. Uh, you, oh. don't, you don't really know what happens to them. Zeb Wells picks this up in his New Mutants run in I think it's two thousand nine, where these kids end up getting taken to limbo by a government agency and raised to be soldiers. There's a whole story that follows up on them. I think it's called Project Prometheus, uh, but it's not picked up for like for like 25 years or something. It's, it's crazy. Again, X-Men continuity, right? There's all these. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Trey, you talk about this being prologue. Uh, If you've read any of the issues for us, you realize just how much prologue has gone into this crossover. Like it seems like years of prologue. And it seems necessary. So uh, we're not covering these, but there's a whole separate trade paperback omnibus collection uh, that's called X-Men Inferno. Uh, prologue i think uh yep. which is sort of the storylines leading up to where we started and it was just too much to cover all of that too but but that that does exist out there for anyone who wants to get even more of the the immediate context leading into where we're picking things up and it's good i mean you guys are going to get into the marauders and the demon battles and madeline Pryor, uh you know getting power and just all of these things come to a head in brilliant brilliant storylines uh, again, X Factor thinks the X Men are dead at this point. Like, there's there's so much leading into all of this. It's a brilliant event. 
And is yeah. it uh, is it after Inferno that like the teams combine together, or is that a little bit later? It's later. So we're in X Factor like 34. It doesn't reshuffle wow. into Peter David taking over until X Factor 71. So it's actually wow. after Extinction Agenda when they reshuffle the books, which is when Claremont leaves, they launch a new X-Men book. And, right, because uh, that's the, num- and, the, the adjective-less X-Men number one. Correct. Yeah. And the New Mutants changes into X-Force, Wolverine's running, and then Cable gets a book. Like uh, the, the, the franchise just goes, like it, there's a lot going on later. But that's in the early 90s. It's a few years away. That's when I came in. <laughs> and then um, the and then the Saturday morning cartoon a few years after that. Yeah. You know, so yeah, there's a there's a lot to happen for these guys. Yeah, I, I think if you were a kid in the nineties, like you were just issued a copy of the the X-Men number one. Like it, it just was something everyone had. <laughs> I had my copy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't reading X-Men until like ninety-three. And so I had to go back and get the rest. So this is I was ten years old when this came out. So like I kind of fell off X-Men at that point, but then for some reason I got really into X-Men Forever a few years ago, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you're ever going to cover that on your show, but like X-Men Forever is a whole other thing. Now, are you talking which... about the, the Claremont continuation? Yes, the Claremont continuation. There's more than one X-Men Forever. Uh, I know. You know I, I will probably get there if I podcast long enough, but I'm putting out a <laughs> lot of content and it's still going to be a couple of years before I even get to giant size number one. So maybe eventually, but not for a long time. <laughs> um, if So yeah, this is a great start to Inferno. Like the stakes are really high and they're, they feel yeah. like very personal stakes. Yes. Which, which is surprising isn't... for what I have always sort of known nebulously as this big sprawling event. It's it's different for summer crossovers because a lot of times summer crossovers are like, oh, aliens are invading this week, so you know everybody, let's let's team up to fight them. Yeah, it, it's there. There's this expectation that it's existential, but that it's also kind of impersonal. And and here, Claremont and and Simonson together are kind of leading with the personal stakes. They're setting up why these specific characters are the ones that are going to be at the center of responding to this, yeah. which is cool. And it w- w- it'll be interesting to look at, like, say, some of the tie-in issues, the ones that are not necessarily X-Books, to see if it retains that very personal feeling or it does feel like, oh, okay, demons are invading this week? Okay, sure. Which I, I will say what what Inferno issues I have read before uh, are tie-in issues. So I'm familiar with a few of those and I'm looking forward to getting to them because some of them are really fun. I think I've read just the Excalibur issues. The Daredevil issue is fun. <laughs> There's I, some good stuff along the way. I promise. I am. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to it now. This is, this is getting exciting. Uh, Daredevil fights an evil dentist in one issue and an evil vacuum cleaner in another. And it sounds stupid, yes. but it's amazing. I, I was thinking of the <laughs> vacuum cleaner issue. <laughs> See, I know this isn't going to be the case, but I'm just imagining Steve Martin. Uh, <laughs> that's the dentist. You'll be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things. Right. <laughs> I think the final thought I have, it's interesting. Uh, I love when writers do this. Nanny and Orphan Maker are clearly villains, but they have the same goals as Cyclops and Jean here, which is to rescue the children. And they end up distracting each other while the demons make off with the babies because uh, Sinister's distracted too, right? Like, Yeah, that, that's something that, that, that really struck me in this issue was you have these three camps, Scott and Jean, uh, Nanny and Orphan Maker, and the demons all is ostensibly after the same thing, getting the children. 
And Nanny's um, hilarious. That image of her like using the jetpack out of the back of her egg suit. <laughs> so good. <yes. laughs> um, it just looks like she's farting a lot. <laughs> and it just struck me that that once once Nanny is put in direct comparison to the demons, it's clear that at least her intentions are better. Even if if the the uh, the way that she's executing the plan is is not great, uh, she's maybe at least a better alternative than uh, soul stealing demons. Yeah, well, and yeah. there's a there's an element of uh, God. We can get lost in the weeds here. If you guys have ever seen The Walking Dead, uh, so. Carol Carol in The Walking Dead tries to raise a couple of children. Uh, and and just wants to protect them, and they end up dying very horribly. And so then she gets more children, and she teaches them to fight. You got to fight back. You've got to you got to stand up. And they still die anyway. Uh, and there's there's this idea of that's kind of what Nanny's doing. She's this corrupt, awful person, but she's weaponizing children. But also, the world is going to hunt you down and kill you. Also, like uh, she's murdering mm-hmm. their parents because they're going to die anyway unless she saves them. She's a fascinating character. Well, and <laughs> and and aside from the parent murdering part, it's not that far removed from Charles Xavier weaponizing the original five with his children army. And this is where Magneto and the Alliance of evil start to make sense. (laughs) The older I get, the more I want a Magneto was right. T-shirt. They are all over the place. (laughs) Just takes a civil order. (laughs) This has been really fun. You guys, I I really enjoyed that with you. Thank Thank you for for being here. And and please, uh, we've mentioned uh, or at least alluded to your podcast a few times, but tell people where they can find you, where they can, uh, get to your stuff, uh, please. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Gray Malkin Lane uh, is Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Feel free to say hello anytime. We're putting out uh, a lot of content. Uh, some people are saying, my friend Derek Kunskin said, uh, you're putting a blistering amount of content out, but I'm moving at a speed that works for me and I'm treating it like a full-time job. So every Monday we drop a new episode, which is an interview with a creative professional, uh, writers and artists from all over the industry. And then we have them join us as we review issues uh, as we're working through the content of the X-Men in kind of chronological order, but continuity order as well. So right now on my show, we're in the middle of X-Men, the hidden years, right? When you guys drop this, we'll be releasing an episode uh, reviewing X-Men, the hidden years, eight and nine with the writer, Erica Schultz, who's currently doing X two, three and hollows Eve at Marvel. I'm also putting out regular content on the Patreon channel, which is for subscribers initially, but then we eventually put the content out on the main show where we're doing uh, deep dives into more obscure characters who uh, we're giving literary analysis and a lot of thought provoking content, just like we did today. Uh, So we're doing like uh, supplementary characters. Uh, The episode coming out right around the time you release this will be all about the parents of Charles Xavier uh, with my friend, Justin Wilder. We're doing uh, more obscure villains and supporting characters. And I'm having a ton of fun with both. And then on the fourth Thursday of every month, we also put up the character trial that I referenced. Uh, In June, we're going to be doing the trial of Lorna Dane or Polaris. Uh, And we'll cover her malice years as well, which we talked about today. Uh, those are the most fun I have on the show. We, uh, we assemble a mock jury and, uh, and have a mock criminal trial, but it's a lot of deep analysis of characters and what they mean and how they change over time. Uh, so yeah, feel free to stay tuned for any of that. We're having a great time over on the show and we'd super appreciate your support. Highly recommend it to our listeners. It is a fantastic show. Um, really great, um, viewpoints that maybe some of our listeners aren't, uh, used to taking to your comics. My my show's unique. There are a few other queer podcasts out there that are really great. Power of X-Men, Cerebro, the X-Wife podcast is wonderful. 
um, but my show goes back to the 60s stuff. We're applying modern context to the old stuff. We're looking at the origins of it. And it really, it started out as kind of buddies hanging out, but I'm a therapist in my day job. So I work a lot of like mental health and political theory in, and then we play like fuck, Mary kill <laughs> parts of it too. So it's like equal parts, silly and nerdy, but also like really thought provoking. Uh, and thank you for the support. Once again, thank you for being here and, and providing your expertise, both in terms of just sort of helping us unpack the continuity, but also because of the, the sort of approach that you take to these books, uh, it sort of allowed us to contextualize them in terms of sort of the, the bigger themes and ideas that are going on here. And, and that's always, uh, I think, an important thing to do, especially with uh, stories that are as rich as this era of X-Men in terms of the way they're interacting with uh, what was going on in the world at the time. Go There's ahead. a whole set of superheroes in this book, but in the eighties, they weren't allowed to say anyone was gay, Hodge, gay, right. sinister, gay, Richter, gay, Iceman, gay. Um, and so some of the, <laughs> some of the themes are direct and others they get to expand on later, which is fascinating too. It's, it, it'd be interesting to pinpoint when exactly uh, X-Men moved from being a commentary on race relations to being a commentary about uh, discrimination against homosexuality because there is definitely a point where that happened it's both and it's always been both but yeah in, in the early books you could see them drawing on the civil rights era more uh and then working in themes of 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 homophobia later uh but yeah i think it's i think they've both always been present yeah but- I, I think it's more broadly ideas of marginalization and oppression a lot of people, and, and, and I'll keep this brief. A lot of people assume uh, Xavier is a template of uh, Martin Luther King, and yeah. mm-hmm. that uh, that Magneto is a template of Malcolm X, which is something you hear uh, spouted often. I don't know exactly what Stanley's original characterizations were about, but right from the beginning, Magneto is wanting a homeland for mutants. He's wanting safety. So when Chris Claremont came along, uh, he made it all about the formation of Israel post-World War II. And he based his version of Magneto on the the, the real-life person, Menachem Begin, where Xavier, his portrayal of Xavier is based on David Ben-Gurion, which are two men that were involved in the formation of Israel who had wildly different ways of viewing how to create this state or this homeland for Jews. And, and I could go on on that for a long time, but that's how Claremont took it. And it's fascinating. The thing about Stanley and I love Stanley. Like Stanley's like the grandfather I never had. But Stan liked to appear deeper than he actually was. There was a lot of self-mythologizing about the process with Stanley. But also uh, a brilliant storyteller, Roy Thomas. Oh, right. Absolutely. And they they had very yes. different working styles, but they were putting out a ton of content and working in very different themes. Uh, we we uh, you look at Craven the Hunter in Spider Man versus the Vulture versus Doctor Octopus versus Electro. I mean, I could go on and on, but they're wildly different characters, and they're all different versions of the types of threats Spider Man needs to face. Uh, again, a brilliant storyteller, but yes, a tremendous amount of like narcissistic ego as well. <laughs> It's Mad Men. If you read, if you've ever seen yeah. Mad Men, that's what Marvel in the '60s was. It's it's Mad Men. Speaking <laughs> of narcissistic egos, if you want to reach out to us, <laughs> you can do so at our email address. It's tombofideas at gmail We are on most of the social medias at this point: Twitter at Tomb of Ideas, Instagram at Tomb of Ideas, Facebook facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And, you know, whatever new social media sites popped up this week, we're probably going to end up there, too. Right. Right. And, of course, uh, you can find our entire back catalog at Cinepunks.com. 
That's Cinepunks with an X. Uh, you'll also find other great shows like Horror Business, Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, and much, much more. So do check out Cinepunks.com. And of course, make sure to p- check out Gray Macklin Lane as well. <laughs> Gray Mulkin, you almost had it. <laughs> you almost made it the whole episode without doing that, James. <laughs> I, I told you, I told you, I would. It's oh. a tongue twister. It's okay. Yeah, Gray Mulkin Lane, G R A Y M A L K I N. And thanks, you guys. This again was a genuine delight. I had a great time today. Thank All you for right. being here. We yeah, really appreciate you, it. You as well. Thank you so much. And. <laughs> Until next time, Tomb Believers. Whoa, sorry. Your homework. Your homework yes. for, for next episode is... Uh, Exterminators 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Avengers 298. Amazing Spider-Man 311. And Daredevil 262. So we will see you then, Tomb Believers. And again, as remember, in Heat Wave, always stay hydrated. Absolutely. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! <laughs>